Romans chapter 8. But again, reading in just a minute from verse 14. A few years ago, Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God. And I agree with the premise of the book. It is that we almost treat the Holy Spirit. In fact, sometimes we even refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Or we kind of forget there is a spirit. And uh, in the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul mentions the spirit once. In the eighth chapter, he mentions the Holy Spirit about 20 times. And so the role of the Holy Spirit begins to be fleshed out a little bit more in Romans chapter 8. When Jesus talked about the fact that he was going away to the Father, he said, I'm going to send another helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And some of what he's going to do, number one, he's going to remind you of everything you've heard me say. And in this passage in chapter 8, two specific roles of the Spirit. One, he bears witness with us. He testifies that we are children of God. Later on in the chapter, you find out that he uh, helps our weaknesses. So the Holy Spirit has a real significant role. So let me read just the first few verses of this chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and following. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul has been teaching up through these first seven chapters about the fact that we've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. The only hope we have is in a Savior who died on the cross. There's nothing within us that is good. There's nothing within us that has earned us eternal life or salvation. And so a little bit of the first seven chapters can be a little bit of a downer. You almost feel like, man, is there any good news? Well, yeah, there was good news in that. There was good news in the fact that the free gift of God is eternal life. But today I want you to see the hope that we have in good news. Beginning this then, just to know that you're a child of God. And he says, one way you're going to know that you're a child of God is that you're being led by the Spirit, not really driven so much that the Spirit just says, okay, go, here's your marching orders, see you later. But he's also referred to in Scripture as a paraclete, the one who is called alongside of us, who walks with us, and he has a purpose in that. It's really, in fact, the tense of this issue of being led by the Spirit means it's already existing. This is already going on. If you're a child of God, one way you'll know that definitely is you're being led by the Spirit. We'll unpack in a minute some ways that you'll see that. But he said you're all sons of God. In case you're here and you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, I'm a female. What's he talking about? Is he, ex- is he excluding the females? No. The word that he uses, in fact, later on it becomes real clear when he uses the word child in the same passage. that He's talking about children of God. But the word that he uses here is more than just offspring. It has an intimate relationship of kinship. And so what Paul is saying is, if you're being led by the Spirit, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be led by the Spirit, and it will indicate, it'll be obvious to you that you're related to Him, that you're His sons, or in this case, if you're a female, that you are daughters. Because here's the good news. You haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Paul's been talking about the fact that in sin, we're all born into sin. And so in that, we have served the law. We have served 
sin. We've been set free from that. And so don't walk back into the old life. He says you haven't received that spirit of slavery leading to fear again. In fact, the word again is indicating that you're not going back to something that was part of your life before. So don't go back into fear. Let me tell you, as as a non-believer, if you're somebody that has never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a reason for fear. Even those who kind of thumb their nose at God, who would love for you to believe that they're, you know, these atheists. I preached a sermon earlier called God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. If you want to listen to that, go to iTunes and listen to it. But the point is this. There's a lot of people who claim, well, you know, I'm not trusting in God. Folks, there's still within them this fear of like, what if I'm wrong? And the fear is going to be realized one day when they see God face to face, and then it's too late to say, oops. <laughs> and so what Paul is saying is you haven't received that kind of spirit that would lead you back to your old life where you live in fear. But here's the good news. You've received a different spirit. You've received the Holy Spirit. You've received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It's interesting that Paul uses this word adoption. In fact, it's only used about five times in all the Scripture. And I, Paul uses it the majority of the time that it is used. There really wasn't a great word in Jewish custom for adoption. Adoption was not that much a part of the Jewish life, but it was very much a part of the Roman life. So Paul is writing to the Romans. All right, here's a little Bible quiz, Old Testament. You don't have to answer out loud. What was the first adoption in the Bible? Moses. Moses, taken down and adopted, brought into the household of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses was adopted. There's, there's a few other, Mephibosheth and some others throughout the Old Testament that were adopted. But adoption was much bigger part of the Roman culture. And I want you to catch a sense of what Paul's talking about because it really speaks to us. To be adopted in, in the Roman culture meant that any past indebtedness, any past a negative mark on your record, so to speak, was satisfied the day you were adopted. It was taken care of by the person that adopted you. Secondly, you didn't come into the family as some kind of second-class citizen. In the Jewish culture, the firstborn son was due a double share. And anybody else that was born was not due as much as he was. And certainly, if you were adopted, it may be that your share was limited, if even existing at all. But in Roman law, you had at least an equal share as an adopted member of the family. And in some circumstances, you could even end up with more of a share than the people that were natural born into the family. So if you're here today and you're adopted, this is a great reminder that we've all been adopted. When I was youth pastor, there was a young girl in our youth group that I just said, you know, you and I have something in common. She said, what do you mean? I said, we've both been adopted. Well, she had been adopted by parents and had, had also been adopted by God when she came to Christ. She said, well, I didn't know you, you know, were adopted by your parents. I said, well, no, I wasn't. My parents were stuck with what they got. <laughs> but here's the cool thing about being adopted. Somebody actually went and chose you. Somebody said, we want that one. That's what God did in adoption. God's not stuck with me. God actually wanted me. As a child of God, one of the things that ought to, ought to bless you is to know that God wanted you it's not so much that god needed you it's that god wanted you so we haven't received the spirit of slavery but we've received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out abba father the word abba is an aramaic word loosely translated it could really be kind of like a personal name 
We kind of translate it sometimes daddy, and that may be going a little too far, but it does mean this. If you were a slave in the household, you could not refer to the head of the family as Abba. So what's he saying? Paul is saying you need to understand this relationship you have with God now. That you're not just a servant in the household. You're not just a second-class citizen. And he's speaking especially to those of us who weren't part of the Jewish heritage or background. We weren't part of the chosen children of God discussed in the Old Testament. But we have been brought into the family by adoption. And we have all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto. We have the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father. And here's where the Holy Spirit enters in. The Spirit Himself bears witness with us. His Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Back to the Roman issue of adoption. If you were adopted in Rome, there had to be seven witnesses to the legal contract of adoption. Just in case something happened to the adoptive parent, there were seven people to go back to and say, were you a part of this adoption? Can you testify that this person was actually adopted? Well, in Christ, we don't need seven witnesses. We have one, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that witnesses to us that we are children of God. I think one of the greatest fears of people is that you think, well, I had this religious experience a few years ago, but am I really a child of God? Well, the Bible wants it to be clear. I've shared this before about the survey that I read in the paper one time where eight people were asked, are you going to heaven? Eight people responded. Not one single person said, yes, I'm going to heaven. Also, not one single person said no. They said things like this. Well, I hope so. One person said, I got a 95% chance. Oh, that's real special. You're going to you know, just, man, I'm really close. Where did we get that kind of theology from? It does not come down to a coin toss. It does not come down to a, well, I think so because I'm better than most people. What does it come down to? I'm a joint heir with Christ. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm going to heaven. I have a relationship with the Father that I can now call Abba, Father. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, what are some of the evidences of that? We talked about this in an earlier message. The, the fruit of the Spirit is one. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So one of the things you ought to be seeing happening in your life is the fruit of the Spirit is beginning to take fruit. It's beginning to show up. You're not having to strain for it. It's something is called fruit. It's not a work. It's a fruit. It's the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. One of the things that's going to start happening in your life as you come to Christ is you're going to begin to feel the same way about sin that God does. You're going to hate it. And there's going to be times that you fall into it, but you're going to hate it, not embrace it. You're going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. If you're, if you're, you know, if you've just got some sin in your life that you're just embracing and you're not ever experiencing the conviction of God, then you need to come back and ask yourself the question, do I really know God? Because His Spirit will continually bear witness with your spirit. In fact, you ought to experience at times the discipline of God. God disciplines those whom He loves. You ought to also love other people the way God loves other people. Now, I know there's people that are annoying and hard to love. That's why I have to pray sometimes, God, help me see them the way you do. Not just as an annoyance, but God, you created them. And so even that desire to want to love other people is not natural. It didn't come from me. 
It came from the spirit that is within me that has begun this work. And not only are we children, but it says we're also heirs. For, for an adopted person to understand, I've been brought into this family not because of something I did or deserved. This family chose me. And they're not just letting me live like one of their servants, but I'm actually a fellow heir in the family. The value of the inheritance is determined by the worth of the one who bequeathed it. Some of you may have relations in your family where it's either your family, your parents, or an aunt or an uncle or something, then they leave you something in a will. But I promise you, whatever they leave you is directly proportional of what they had. So to be a fellow heir with Christ means that we have been bequeathed this heirship by God Almighty. And God is saying there's no second class Christians. You're all in on it. In fact, you're a joint heir. You're a fellow heir with Christ. What does that mean? Everything that's coming to Jesus belongs to you. Now that needs to soak in for a minute because that sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It is. It's too good But it is true. That's grace. Until you get to the point where you look at grace and you look at what God has done and you recognize that is too good to be true, you really haven't captured grace yet. So you're a joint heir with Christ, a fellow heir with Jesus. Some people don't like that. That's kind of what the point of the parable in Matthew chapter 20 was, that Jesus tells this parable about laborers that the the owner of the vineyard went out into, and he brought in some laborers and they worked a whole day and some others only worked about a half a day. In fact, the last group he worked in, brought in only worked for an hour. And people started grumbling. Wait a minute, they're getting the same thing I'm getting. He said, wait a minute. Didn't I give you everything I promised you? Then don't you begrudge these people that I brought in at the last hour that they would receive what I want to give it because it's mine to give. You're a joint heir with Christ. And if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. What is Jesus talking about over in the the Gospel of John when he says, if I've been persecuted, you're going to be persecuted as well. So the people that Paul's writing to in Rome are experiencing suffering. It's good news for them to understand, I'm a child of God, and yet... That hasn't fully been realized yet. That, that glorification hadn't totally taken place yet. It will one day. And you're suffering right now. And some of the reason you're suffering is because you're a child of God. And so Paul simply gives the, the promise, the assurance that if you suffer with him, you'll also be glorified with him. In fact, Jesus took it personally when people suffer. Remember what he said to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul was persecuting Christians. This is Paul before he became Paul. Before he came to Christ, his name was Saul. Persecuting Christians. Remember what Jesus said? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes it personally. And one day we'll be glorified with him. Isn't that good news? You're a child of God. But here's the question I got for you. Is there any family resemblance? I don't know if y'all remember Steve Urkel, but we used to watch that show. Was it Family Matters? So one day I, I pulled my pants up real high and kind of walked in, acting like a nerd. 
And I just want to see what my kids would say. And I kind of came in with my pants hiked up. I said, who do I look like? And I wanted them to say Steve Urkel. They said, you look like grandmother. I thought, okay. Well, you know, unfortunately, and, and students, some of you, this is going to be a real shock to you, but you, you end up becoming a lot like your parents. You end up looking a lot like them. You end up talking a lot like them. And some of you are saying, man, I'm trying to overcome that. Well, listen, in a spiritual sense, it's a good thing. We ought to want to bear a family resemblance because if we're children of God, there ought to be people that look at us at times and say, you know what, what I hear her say sounds a lot like what I hear in the Bible. What I see him do looks a lot like Jesus. My kids are old enough now where I can't use names sometimes in illustrations, but I'll at least share this illustration. One of my children had lost his scissor privileges <laughs> because he used to just love to cut stuff in the house. We had one of those little things that draped over the back of the couch that had tassels on it. He just thought it would be really cool if he just went and snipped all of those and they landed on the floor. So we had removed his scissor privileges. In fact, I don't think he ever got them back. But he was down in the basement one day, and my daughter came up and said, Dad, Mom, there's something going on in the basement. I don't think you're going to like it. Now, every family has the tattletale kid. So we were getting this from the tattletale kid, but it made me drop what I was doing and run downstairs. My son, who had lost his scissor privileges, had picked up some scissors, and he had bangs way down here. He had cut his hair all the way up into his scalp, which, if I remember correctly, was about two days before school pictures. And I looked at him, and I was mad at first until I heard what he said. I said, why did you do that? He said, I wanted to look like you. <laughs> I thought, you know, I didn't go to the barber shop and get this cut. This is called a receding hairline. It will come eventually. You don't do this to yourself. Well, what's that saying? That's a son saying, I want to be like my dad. Folks, in a spiritual sense, God has begun a work in us. It's called sanctification. And what he's trying to do in us, men and women, is he's trying to make us look like Jesus. We're a joint heir with Christ. He wants us to look like him. One day, we'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. But, folks, our goal should be that when that day finally comes, there shouldn't have to be a big change. Why? Because God's already been at work on us. We haven't been fighting him every step of the way. Well, we've been allowing that to happen. Why? Because we're his children. Second point, not only are we a child of God, but we have a future. Good news. We have a future. Let me read verses 18 through 23. Paul speaking says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. 
We have a future hope. Paul's just talked to them about the fact they're suffering with Christ. They're suffering in Christ. They're suffering for the name of Christ. And then he says, well, let me just tell you something. I don't even consider what I'm experiencing now. And go back and read the life of Paul. He suffered incredibly. He was in prison most of his adult life, it seemed like. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. All for the cause of Christ. And he says, you know what? When I look at all that's ever happened to me, it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Folks, we only have a glimpse of the glory of God. We only have a glimpse of what eternity in heaven with God's going to be like. But Paul says, I know enough about God that anything I would experience on this earth is not even worthy to be in comparison to that. Because there's glory to come. In fact, he uses the word, I consider. This is one time I just really love the King James Version. It says, I reckon. I reckon. If you're not from the South, you may have never heard that word. But literally what the word means is, I've taken an inventory. I've done the math. I've added it up. I've given careful and consider, uh, careful consideration to this. And I'm putting this in the account of anything I'm experiencing now and suffering is not worthy to even be compared for the glory that's going to be revealed in us. To reveal means to take off the cover. The glory's already there. But one day, the cover's coming off. And the glory of Christ will be revealed, and we along with Him. And then look at some of the words Paul uses. He says, the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly. Do you, do you get a sense of straining towards the future in that? The word anxious longing means intense anticipation. In fact, it's a word of outstretched neck. It's a word where you're on your tiptoes. You ever remember being young and you maybe couldn't see everybody else? Maybe there was a parade coming by or you were at the Masters. And you couldn't see over the dude in front of you. So you had to kind of get on your tiptoes to see what was coming. That's the, that's the words that Paul is using. He's saying, Paul's saying, even the creation is on its tiptoes waiting for the return of Christ because they know when the return of Christ comes, all of this gets changed. But until then, they groan. Why? Because they're suffering the result of the fall. Now, I don't want to get overly mystical with you, but folks, I just believe the garden was perfect. I don't think the garden had weeds. Anybody got a garden this year? You know, you got to pick weeds out of that. You got predators that kind of come and take it. There weren't thorns and thistles in the garden. What happened? Because of the fall, the whole creation has suffered. Now we deal with things like pollution and we deal with things like seismic activity that disrupts the earth. We deal with weeds, we deal with bugs. And the creation was not subjected to that willingly. But it was subjective because of the fall. There was a curse pronounced by God. And they're waiting to be set free. That's a passive word, meaning they can't free themselves. It's got to be done by God. It's got to be done to them. And so all creation longs for that day where we're no longer slaves of corruption. Here's the problem with the world. There's a, a word in physics called entropy. It means, it means that the world is under constant and irreversible degradation. It kind of smacks in the face of people that believe in evolution. 
that the world just kind of sprung out of nothing and has gotten better. That goes against the law of physics. The world's not getting better. The world's getting worse. And one day, the Bible tells us it will melt with intense heat. It's not going to be because man destroyed it. It's because God finally said, son, go get your bride. The day is coming when the earth will finally be recreated. The old earth passes away. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And we long for that along with creation. In fact, two things that are happening is we groan even within ourselves. We're waiting eagerly even within ourselves for our adoption as sons. And you say, well, wait a minute. Back in earlier in the chapter, he says that's already happened. It has. But the full ramifications, the full completions of that hasn't happened yet. It does the day we see Jesus. And also the redemption of our body. Our bodies are falling apart. And one day you're going to get a new body that's not falling apart. A new body that doesn't need glasses, doesn't need a hearing aid, doesn't need a hairpiece. Our bodies are being corrupted. You can go to the gym all you want to. All you're doing is putting off the inevitable. One day your body will turn back to dust. But Jesus will one day give you a new body. And we yearn for that. And that's where we end with our last point, just the last two verses. You have a hope. Quickly, verses 24 and 25, he says, For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. The fall of man is not the last word. Hope is. We've received hope. There was a man that walked up to a Little League baseball game, and the scoreboard said 18 to nothing. So he started talking to the left fielder during the break in the action. And he said, son, are y'all zero and the other team's 18? And he said, yes, sir. He said, well, don't get discouraged. Don't give up hope. The boy said, why should I give up hope? We hadn't even batted yet. Well, I want you to think about that. We hadn't even batted yet. You may suffer on this earth, but folks, we have a hope. We have a future. We have a promise from Almighty God who's able to bring it to pass. Hope means confident expectation. Don't use hope the way we do. Sometimes like, hey, you coming over Saturday night? Well, I hope so. That means I don't know if I am or not. That's not what the word hope means. The word hope in the Bible means confident expectation. It's going to happen, and we've placed our hope there. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, we're believing in something we hadn't yet seen. We've just gotten a foretaste of it. In fact, early in the passage, it talked about the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. The first fruits were those ones that came to the harvest first, and those were the ones offered in sacrifice, but those were a promise. Hey, there's more coming. That's why the Holy Spirit's like our down payment. It's our first fruits. It's our earnest money from God that there's more coming. And we hope in perseverance. This cheerful endurance. The reason we persevere, folks, is because we catch a glimpse of what's coming. My family used to go to Daytona Beach on vacation. I grew up in Macon, Georgia, and we go on vacation. And one of the things I hated is every night we'd go out to eat. My parents, I don't guess we could get seafood in those days in Macon, Georgia. So every night we went out for seafood. And every night I ordered a hamburger. 
But also remember this. You'd go up, and I'd hear them sometimes tell my dad, well, it's going to be a little bit of wait. How long? An hour and a half. And we would wait. I'm thinking, there's a drive through right there. I can see it. We can eat now. We don't have to wait an hour and a half. We'd get there early knowing we'd have to wait an hour and a half. I'd be starving to death. Why did my parents wait? Because they knew the food was going to be good. It was worth the wait. I was going to order a hamburger. I could have gotten that anywhere. Folks, the reason we wait, the reason we persevere at times even through suffering, is because we've caught a glimpse and we realize all we've caught is a glimpse of the glory of God. So place your hope there. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, God, thank you that the news from you is all good. And yet we realize we don't have the whole picture yet. So, Father, give us that assurance, that witness of the Spirit within our hearts that we're your children. God, thank you for the glimpse we catch of all that means about adoption and our, the fact that we're heirs and joint heirs with Christ. But as we live in this day, God, I pray that the family resemblance shows other people that we really are children of God. And God, thank you that you've left us not as the world is without hope, but we have hope. That's even why at a funeral of a loved one, we rejoice in hope because we know where that person is as a believer and where one day we too will be. Thank you for the hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.